Hey guys, if you found your way to my podcast today, I am so thankful for you because here we are a family. I am your coach. I really am doing this because I believe in you and I want you to have a wonderful birth experience. So what you are going to find here are a collection of amazing birth stories that are going to lift you up and support you and empower you and teach you. And you're also part of a family. You can find that family on Instagram at Birth Story Podcast. In today's episode, I interview Maricela of Bunny Lash Lounge. She shares all about her birth center at a hospital birth where she planned a water birth and why and how she ended in an epidural that she loved. I can't wait for you to learn from Maricela today all about how she empowered herself and educated herself for this wonderful journey of parenthood. So let's get to it. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does the day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Okay, before we get started, I have a couple of reminders. The first, if you are pregnant and you are seeking more information, I have a ton of free guides for you at birthstory.com. Click on the tab, the workbook. All you have to do is put your email address in and you have access to my whole library. These are all of the documents that I share with my private doula clients. So if you're interested in learning more about delayed cord clamping, cord blood banking, placenta encapsulation, what the epidural procedure is like, download all my free guides at birthstory.com. While you're there, I would love for you to pick up a copy of the Birth Story Pregnancy Guidebook. It's a 42-week, week-by-week guide to your pregnancy. It has 42 journaling prompts, lots of birth affirmations, 42 birth stories, and it tells you everything that's going on inside of you from your baby's perspective. You can get $5 off and free shipping and a free gift by using code BIRTHSTORYPODCAST when you check out. Last but not least, if you are a fan of this podcast, then I just ask that you push pause and leave me a five-star review. I don't know how all the algorithms work, but I know that the reviews help other parents find their way to my podcast. I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening, and I would really appreciate a review. Thanks and enjoy this episode. 
Hey, Maricela, it's Heidi. Welcome to the Birth Story Podcast. Hi, Heidi. I'm so excited to be here and telling you my story. I am so excited too, because you're either the first guest or like one of just a couple that I've had an opportunity to record with so close to delivery. So tell us how far postpartum are you? So I am seven weeks postpartum and it does not feel like seven weeks. It definitely feels like it's been a lot longer. (laughs) Isn't it so funny? It's like pregnancy can feel forever and then the postpartum period, but then moms will tell you like, but then all of a sudden their kids are 18 and they're like, how did that happen? So yes, a hundred (laughs) percent. It starts to speed up. So tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you live, all the things. All right. So my name is Maricela. I live in Vancouver, Washington. I'm married to my husband, Scott, and we have our baby girl, Sloan Rose, whose birth story I'll be telling you about today. And then we also have our first baby, our fur baby. Her name's Coda. And I actually own a lash extension business. So I do lash extensions. And then I also do offer trainings for other lash artists in my area. I absolutely love following your Instagram. It makes me just want to, I don't know, do better about putting makeup on and doing my hair and like doing my lashes and feeling good about myself. So I've had my lashes done a couple of times and I really, really enjoy it when I take that time to pamper myself. So Maricela, will you tell everyone what your Instagram is? Yeah. So my Instagram is Bunny Lash Lounge and that's the name of my business. And there's actually a funny story with uh, how we came up with our the name of my business is my husband always calls me Bunny. So when we were thinking of a name, we're like, oh, Bunny Lash Lounge. <laughs> and it kind of just stuck. But it's actually been really nice because a lot of my clients and just followers don't even refer to me as my name. They say, oh, Bunny. <laughs> it's really cute. It's actually catchy and it's memorable. Like I have such a hard time sometimes on Instagram when I'm trying to find people like, oh, what was their name again? And um, but not with you. I'm like, oh, yeah, Bunny Lash Lounge, like super easy to tag you in posts (laughs) and all the things. Well, for our listeners, the one thing that we need to know about lashes is can we do this when we're pregnant? Yes, you can. Um, There are just a couple of things you have to keep in mind. Most artists have flat beds. And, you know, when you're pretty pregnant, you don't want to lay on your back for so long. So there's lots of pillows you can use. I personally use the recliner, which is great for pregnant clients. So you definitely can still do it. The only thing I will say is with the change of hormones, it is possible that you had extensions for years. And then with the pregnancy, you become allergic to the adhesive or something in the process of the extensions. And that can happen. So (laughs) keep that in mind. Our bodies do such weird things in pregnancy, don't they? Oh, like (laughs) becoming allergic to like your lash adhesive. I mean, come on, that's not fair. Well, we'll send everyone to your Instagram. If you're in Vancouver, Washington or around that area, like please reach out to Maricela to get your lashes done. And we're going to dig into your birth story. I'm so excited because it's fresh, right? Like you probably are like, oh yeah, I've got every detail and I can't wait to hear all about it. So the way we always start though is talking about your journey to pregnancy if you even had one. So how old 
were you or are you when you started thinking about having a family? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. So I'm 28 now. And I got off birth control in 2018. So what would that make me? 25. 25. Yes. So we had been married for about three years by then. Okay. And uh, we weren't ready to like full on commit to let's have a baby, but we wanted to start the whole getting the birth control out of my system situation. So we started that in October of 2018. So I was, yeah, I was 25, almost 26. And then do you want me to just get into it? Because it is yeah. a pretty long before we actually get to baby situation. <laughs> well, I was going to say immediately, like my ears are perked up because I'm like, okay, October 2018, but I know you're seven weeks postpartum with your first. So I'm assuming yes. there's a little bit of a story here. So um, I would love for you to take our family on a journey with you and share with us about what those three years looked like. Awesome. So yeah, like I said, we start stopped using birth control in 2018 in October and weren't fully committed to, you know, having a baby just yet because we still were doing a lot of traveling and just enjoying being married. We started our relationship living long distance and we didn't live together until we got married. You know, we really wanted to cherish that time of living together in the same state, in the same house, and just enjoying each other. But eventually, February of 2019 rolls around, and it was just one of those in the moment decisions where we're like, okay, well, you know, like, let's just do this thing. And if it happens, it happens kind of thing. And then, of course, it happened. <laughs> so I got a positive pregnancy test after I missed my period. So I wasn't like tracking ovulation or anything like that. We just did it and it worked. Unfortunately, a couple of days after I got the positive pregnancy test, I did start bleeding. And I went into my OB that following week and they checked my HCG levels. They said they were very low. So I was miscarrying that pregnancy. Um, it was very early on. I was about six weeks. I think they call it a chemical pregnancy. And that pregnancy and that loss was very hard on me mentally. The best way I could describe it is there was a lot of past trauma that I had that I thought I had dealt with. And then after this miscarriage, it all just kind of resurfaced. So to be honest with you, I was very depressed. I was in a very dark spot for a while. From what I can remember, it was probably around a month where on the outside, everything seemed great. I had recently started my business and moved it from my home into an actual storefront. It was thriving. So that all looked amazing. I was you know, still socializing with people. On the outside, like I said, everything seemed great. But on the inside, whenever I was alone, I would, whenever I was driving to work, I would just cry. And I you know, knew that there was something wrong, but I didn't, I just kind of attributed it only to the miscarriage. And I went on like this for about a month where nobody knew what was happening, not even my husband, because I was so great at just like acting like everything was fine. But eventually I did on one of those uh, crying sessions in the car, I called my best friend, Ruby. She lives in Vegas. That's where I used to live. And I told her, like, I just poured my heart out to her and I told her everything I was feeling. 
and how I didn't understand why this past trauma was coming up now. And she, you know, was great about reassuring me that this was all normal and that, you know, a miscarriage is trauma. So it can trigger other trauma to come up. And she uh, was really great about encouraging me not only to talk to my husband because I wasn't talking to him about it, but also to find a therapist. So I definitely have to thank her because she really helped me get through a lot of that. And eventually I did find a therapist, which actually wasn't as easy to find as you would think. Most of them had wait lists, which was very frustrating. But eventually when I did find her, it's it's been the best decision I've ever made. And I still see her now, not as frequent as I used to, but I still see her. So I just really want people to be aware that miscarriage can trigger past trauma and that it's it's okay and you can get through it with the right help. <laughs> Maricel, thank you so much for sharing about that. It is so important. I've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast about how past trauma can affect your birth also. And so whether we're birthing in miscarriage or we're birthing a full-term baby or we're birthing in preterm labor. I mean, we're, our body is physiologically birthing and there's a lot of emotions and hormones. And like you said, chemicals that can play into that. But I just really appreciate your perspective and your vulnerability there. Cause I know that's not easy that you're coming on here to say this happened to me and I want to help someone else. So, you know, our encouragement to you today is that if you're listening and you are suffering silently, like find a Ruby, right? Call your best yes. friend, talk to your partner, call someone because it's normal for past traumas to be triggered with all different things, including a brand new trauma, you know, like a miscarriage or a fertility journey. It's, it's not normal or it shouldn't be the way we live our life to be suffering alone. And so there's help, right? And so yes. Maricela, you got help, which is amazing. Did you do any specific type of therapy like EMDR or just talk therapy? Nope, just talk therapy. And I can't stress how how much it can help. It sounds so silly, but I immediately started feeling better. And when did you kind of look at your husband after all of this and say, I think I'm ready to try that again? So we did, we both decided to wait a couple months. I feel like it was at least three months that we both were like not even trying. It wasn't even, we would talk about the baby, obviously, but it wasn't something we wanted to even attempt at the moment. So it was, yeah, at least three months of us waiting. And then we started trying again. Okay. And so mm -hmm. tell me about that next try. Did you get pregnant again just as easily? So it definitely took a little bit longer. It felt like a long time, but looking back, it, it really wasn't. So I got that positive pregnancy test in December of 2019. So it wasn't an awful long time, but it definitely, when you're trying and you want it so bad, it feels like forever. You know, I was obsessed with not only birth, but getting pregnant. So I was doing all the things, the tracking my ovulation, the temperature, all of that, which 
honestly really took the fun out of getting pregnant. (laughs) Unfortunately, that pregnancy is not our baby girl. (laughs) In February of 2020, at 11 weeks, I started bleeding again. And it was a weekend. So we had to go into the ER. And that's where, you know, they told us there was no heartbeat. And it was just, it was a different kind of sad. The first miscarriage was very hard on me mentally. The second miscarriage was a lot harder on my body. And I will get into all those details. So I went to see my OB that following week. And, you know, she told me that she thought that I had miscarried due to low progesterone levels. And she told me that, you know, next pregnancy, she would prescribe progesterone, which it felt like, okay, great that we're going to try to do something for the next one. But it very much felt like, oh, this one wasn't important enough to try something. We have to wait till the next one to actually intervene some way. And I know progesterone is one of those things that different providers have different opinions about, but whether it actually works or not, it definitely for me felt like, okay, at least we're doing something for future pregnancies. So she told me that, you know, I was having the miscarriage and that we could either go ahead and do a DNC. I don't know what that stands for, but I know what it is. I don't know if you want to say the full name of it. Yes. So you can either have a D and E, which is the dilation and evacuation or a DNC, which is the dilation and the curatage. Okay, so you were given this choice, it sounds like, to have a D&E or a DNC. So yeah, I was given the choice if I wanted to have a DNC or I could just wait and let the miscarriage run its course. At the moment, I chose to just let the miscarriage run its course. I didn't want to intervene, which I did regret in the long run. So I started to have blood draws every two weeks to check HCG levels because as your listeners may or may not know, the HCG level has to go down and lower back down to zero. So that tells your body you're not pregnant anymore. So unfortunately for me, this went on for three months. So for three months, I would go in every two weeks, have my blood drawn, and they would tell me what my level was. And it was a very hard three months because I constantly just felt like, when is this going to be over? All I could think of was, okay, I have a dead baby inside of me, (laughs) you know, because I was 11 weeks. I was, I felt like far further, far along. So Um, let me ask you a question, Maricela. mm -hmm. So you had gone to the emergency room because you were bleeding, but you didn't ever feel like you passed the baby. No. So it was a a little burst of blood, like bright red blood, enough to scare me to go into the ER, but the the baby had not passed. Yes. Okay. So for everyone that's listening, I really wanted to clarify that because in a miscarriage, we bleed and bleed and our uterus will start to contract at some point and then release and let go. A different depends on which gestation you're at, what that looks like, what that feels like, what the experience is. It's all different. But so Maricela, in your case, you were having some bleeding, but like that, you hadn't really gone into like, I'm going to say labor, right? Where your uterus really starts to contract and let go of the pregnancy and the baby. Correct. Yes. So were your HCG levels remaining high? 
So they were going down, but very slowly. Like, I mean, you know, 20 to 30. I don't know what the measurement is, but numbers down. Instead of hundreds. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was happening. It was just happening very slowly. And that's, I guess, why it took three months. But eventually... I did go in to see my OB again. And we talked about how this was just taking too long for my, you know, mental health as well. So then she went ahead and told me that I could go in for to an infusion center and have a dose of methotrexate done so that that would hopefully help the pregnancy pass fully. Because like you said, I, I had the bleeding at the beginning, but then that was it. It was very little and that was all that came out. So I went into an infusion center to have that dose uh, of methotrexate. And I should mention all of this is happening during the beginning of COVID. So it was, uh, I wasn't working because all, you know, everyone was in quarantine, everything was shut down. And so I was dealing with all of this without the distraction of my job, which is like a very good distraction. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So I did go ahead and go in for the methotrexate. And that was very scary. It was, I was not warned how intense that was going to be. So I was told by my OB, oh, you know, you may experience some bleeding, you may have some cramping, or you could also feel nothing, which was not the case. 11 days after that dose, I started feeling what I thought was cramps. Now that I've had a baby, I know they were contractions. And that went on for about eight hours where I had these intense contractions. I didn't know what was going on. I was having a ton of bleeding. I was passing blood clots the size of golf balls, which, you know, whenever you go see your OB, they always tell you if that happens, that's not good. Right. So I was terrified and in pain, but I also didn't want to take anything for the pain because I'm the type of person that if I get asked a question, I want to be able to describe to you exactly what happened. And I felt like taking the medication. I don't know. I was just being stubborn about it, I guess. I called my OB at like midnight and she was like, no, you're fine. This is normal. She almost seemed annoyed that I was even calling her. But yeah, after about eight hours of that, it fully passed and I can't say I saw a, my baby, but I did see what I know was my baby. <laughs> so that was very hard. And then as soon as you felt that and saw that the cramping ended? Yes. So I had, like I said, a lot of the bleeding and the, the big clots and then the bleeding stopped and I went in for another HCG test And I was, I believe, like at a five. So pretty much back down to zero. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maricela, I, as a birth doula, I get hired very early. Sometimes before my clients even find out they're pregnant. Like if they're IVF or IUI clients, they'll retain me just in hopes, you know. And 25% of my clients end up having a miscarriage. That's the statistic. And you hire your doula early on. And so in my practice, I often have to walk my clients through their miscarriages. So those eight hours that you were talking about having contractions, 
a lot of people don't know that, right? Like if you didn't have a doula, like what do you do? Like how do you cope if you're not having someone to support you? I mean, I have some tips and tricks, right? Like getting in a shower can help. Taking a bath can help. Just trying to stay as relaxed as possible. They will offer sometimes some pain medications, which wasn't an option for you, you know, but resting, but you're kind of in labor. So moving your body, getting some massages, some hip squeezes. Eight hours is a long time to be emotionally suffering because we know that our baby is gone and physically in pain. So like, what did you do that you are open to share to get through those eight hours that might be able to help somebody else? Honestly, I wish that I knew then what I know now because I would have known to, like you said, get in the shower do some movements. But at the moment, I didn't realize like I'm in labor, I'm having, I'm passing this baby. So I cried. (laughs) I cried a lot. I, my husband was very supportive. He, we were both scared because we didn't realize what was going on. Like I said, I wish that I would have either, like you said, had a doula or that at least my OB would have been more open and just told me exactly what was going to happen which I know can be different for everyone, but at least tell me the possibilities because I, you know, I thought I was dying. I was like, oh my gosh, like what is going on? Like, is this normal? I didn't know what was normal or wasn't normal. So I didn't do much to cope with the pain other than, you know, lay in bed with my husband and cry. And then eventually it stopped, but it was, it was a very scary time. And which is why I say my first miscarriage prepared me mentally. The second miscarriage prepared my body and was harder on my body. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm sorry that you had those experiences. As somebody who's just witnessed it over and over again, it's just brutal. It's just brutal. And so I'm so thankful for you for being open to share your story with my listeners so that they can learn something from you, but also have some solidarity because there's a lot of people listening that have already been through this too. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, right now they're thinking, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, Maricela gets it. There's somebody else that understands how hard that is, right? Like we hear like, oh, you know, such and such had a miscarriage, but like, did you know she had labor? Did you know she had contractions for eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours? A lot of people don't, know that side of it if they didn't have a DNC or a DNE, you know, which is emotionally and physically painful in a whole different way because that's surgery. Did you have to follow up with your OBGYN afterwards just to make sure there was no anything left, like to have an ultrasound? I mean, you said your HCG level was five. Sorry, I interrupted you. Sorry. Go ahead. It's okay. (laughs) Surprisingly, no, I did not have to follow up with my OB at all other than the lab work. So I didn't see her. She just sent me a message saying, oh, your HCG levels are back down to zero. You know, you're fine to try and get pregnant again. So that was surprising to me. So now it's February of 2020 and we're in the middle of like the worst nightmare. And I mean, I just can't even imagine that this is coinciding with the pandemic 
Yeah. So the miscarriage started in February, but since it took three months for me to actually get the methotrexate, now we're in February, March, April, May. So when all... I'm actually going through through the um, methotrexate dose and all of the labor. Oh my God. So even worse. So yes. <laughs> now well into the pandemic of isolation and like still, and I, when we look back on February, March, April, May, none of us knew what was going on then still. We were all like, if we leave the house, we're going to die. And yes. you had said like your, your peace was going to work and your joy. And that was taken away from you too. And yes, so yes. we have to be at home. And in a way it was a blessing in disguise because I was able to go through those eight hours at home and not have to worry about, oh, I have to go to work the next day or all of that. But it would have been nice to have my job as, you know, a mental distraction. Yeah. Well, right now I'm trying to do some math because my son was born on April 27th. (laughs) So (laughs) I know you delivered kind of around the same time. And so Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, it's May. Now I sort of know when you got pregnant. When did you and your husband say, okay, let's try this again. So this time we did want to try right away as soon as we could try again. So as soon as my HG levels were at a zero and the OB said, you're good to go, we started to try again. So this time it only took three months. So I did get a positive pregnancy test again in August of 2020. And I say only three months because for some reason it felt fast. And I think it was partly just because we had to wait so long to be able to try again. I think so too. Did you take progesterone though? I took progesterone. Yes. As soon as I got the positive pregnancy test, I sent my OB a message and she sent a prescription over. Okay. So you did choose. I like what you said earlier where you said, even if you felt like some OBs feel like it doesn't work, it feels like you're doing something. A hundred percent. Yes. I think it mentally helped me a lot to know I'm doing everything I can for this baby. And if for some reason I miscarried again, I I would feel that I did everything I could. And this time with the positive pregnancy test, it felt different. So I actually, again, was obsessed with, you know, getting pregnant. So I took a, a pregnancy test one week before my missed period. So technically it shouldn't have said positive yet. I didn't have to, but I immediately, I saw the two pink lines and I just felt inside of me like this pregnancy is different and it's strong and it's there because I shouldn't have had a positive test yet. Speaking in the sense of when you normally would take a test after your missed period. So obviously my husband and I were ecstatic. I couldn't wait to tell him. So there was no cutesy way of letting him know. I just, he walked into the bathroom and I was crying and I showed him the test and we were just both very happy. So I immediately called my OB, uh, same OB I'd been seeing this whole time to schedule an appointment. And she uh, scheduled me in for a dating ultrasound. And like I said, she did prescribe the progesterone, which made me feel really great about feeling like I'm doing something to make sure this pregnancy works. Unfortunately, I did not stick to this practice of this with this OB that I was seeing. And it, so what happened was on the day of my dating ultrasound, the appointment that I had to find out how far along I was, it was 10 minutes before my appointment. I was in the parking lot with my husband waiting to go inside and they called me 
and canceled my ultrasound. And they said that they had to cancel the appointment because, you know, 2020 was crazy. And at this time in 2020 was when all the wildfires were happening in the Northwest. Yeah. So even though the fires were not near us, we had a lot of smoke, which I'm not sure how this affects a medical practice that is indoors. But for some reason, they felt that they couldn't see patients which was very frustrating because when you've had losses or even if you haven't had losses, but you're wanting that confirmation that your baby is there and you're outside the office and they tell you, sorry, go home. It was an awful feeling. I, I'm not one to speak up very often, but at that point I lost it. And I told them I've, you know, I've had miscarriages. I'm I was so much looking forward to this appointment. I can't go home. Like I need to see, get an ultrasound today. Good for you. And and I'm so glad I did that. You know, the person who called me was like, okay, let me see what I can do. Um, Luckily, they were able to call uh, the ultrasound, the lab in the hospital that's nearby and got me in there. So I didn't go home empty handed. I was able, and the hospital was just right across the street. So I was able to go in there and have the ultrasound. And, you know, we saw her little heartbeat and it was just the best moment ever. Unfortunately, since it was mid pandemic, I was only able to go in to the ultrasound. So my husband wasn't able to come in, but it was still just such a great feeling of relief for both of us. Were you Um, able to um, like FaceTime him or like, you know, video chat? You know, I didn't ask. Maybe I could have, but at that moment I was just so flustered and especially with like, having that other appointment canceled, it was just, it uh, wasn't on my mind. Totally yeah. understandable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So um, you were able to call him though, or at least run out and say like, oh my gosh, she's doing yeah, great. So, mm-hmm, yeah. So it was just a quick ultrasound with like a tech. I didn't even see a doctor or anything. So the, you know, the tech showed up, showed me the heartbeat, took some pictures, and then I was on my way and told us like approximately how far along we were. So then he was waiting outside in the car for me. So we were able to celebrate that immediately. But then this did, you know, I decided, we decided both like we're not sticking to this practice. We had had a couple other incidents actually following this ultrasound. A nurse called to quote unquote give me the results of my ultrasound, but she was very confused. She said, Oh, I wanted to let you know that the reason you're bleeding is because you have a small subcorneomic hemorrhage, I think is how you say it. Hematoma, um, subchorionic yes. hematoma, and then that can hematoma. bleed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, but I wasn't bleeding. So I'm not sure why she thought I was bleeding, if she was reading old, like past notes in my chart. But I was just like, I'm not bleeding. I don't know what you're talking about. Like the only reason I went in for an ultrasound was for a dating. So it just felt like one thing after another that this practice just was not the right place for us. I really liked the OB. I just, the staff and the nurses and just the way I was treated was not a pleasant experience. (laughs) I am so sorry, but I am so proud of you for switching practices. Like y'all listening here loud and clear, like treat this pregnancy like you would treat like your business, right? Like if you are getting a bad vibe or you're not getting treated well and you're going to be giving this person or practice thousands and thousands of dollars, like move along, right? Interview lots of people. I think everyone should interview their midwives and their OBs the way you would interview your nanny. Like that's <laughs> yes. how serious it is, right? Is this who's taking care of your baby? 
This is taking Mm -hmm. care of you. So I'm so glad. So how did you find a different place to love on you? So I researched, I just went online, did a quick Google search of uh, midwife practices. And then at this point, I had listened to probably honestly over 300 birth stories from all the podcasts and everything. So I learned about water birth. And so I researched a midwife practice who did water births. But we also, my husband felt more comfortable with me being in a hospital. And I did feel more comfortable as well. I probably would have been open to a birth center. So my husband and I both felt more comfortable with being in a hospital. So I found a practice of midwives who offered water births in a birth center that was attached to a hospital. And then they also had OBs in the practice. So if for some reason you became high risk, it was a very easy transition into the OB practice. So I did call them ahead and did a little interview before I went in for an initial appointment. And, you know, now I was a lot more educated as to what I wanted and what I wanted my care to look like. So as soon as I felt like they were the right practice for us, I went in and started seeing um, the midwives there. I will say this practice is pretty large. So there was probably about 10 to 15 midwives total. And I knew that I didn't have any control of who was going to be on call when I went into labor, which will play into my birth story later. So I just wanted to mention that. Oh, okay. You know, and I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, all the way across the the United States. And we have lots of midwifery practices here, but I think the most in any practice is maybe like six in my area, maybe seven. So 10 to 15 midwives is like amazing. I'm like, oh, this is so cool to have that many midwives like to support. Usually it's like we have 22 OBGYNs and two midwives here. (laughs) So, I mean, really how amazing. So Maricela, this is amazing because you just said like you were a lot more educated and informed and you'd listen to over 300 podcasts and I don't have 300 podcast episodes yet. So can you share with the audience what some of your other favorite birth podcasts are? Yeah. So I really liked the birth hour and I found that podcast after my first miscarriage. So I had months to listen to podcasts. And at the time, I think she still had like an open, like where you could see all her episodes and she has a ton of birth stories. Now I think it's limited to like the most recent couple hundred, but yes, that was one of the first ones I found. And then the mommy labor nurse podcast, hers is really informative as well. And she's a nurse, a labor nurse. (laughs) And then there was the Birthful Podcast with Adriana Lozada. Very cool. Okay, I'm going to link to all of them in the show notes. I know Bren from The Birth Hour and Lizelle from Mummy Labor Nurse and then Adriana from Birthful. So those are all amazing, amazing podcasts for... So if you're listening to this one and you love birth stories, like add those podcasts and subscribe to really help get you, get you into a good place. So Maricela, there you are, right? Like, with this amazing new practice attached to a hospital, but kind of a birth center um, vibe. And we're planning this water birth. Tell me about how the rest of your pregnancy went. So initially it was still very hard to accept the pregnancy, right? Because I have had that those losses in the past that I had a really hard time accepting it. And I took us a while, both my husband and I, it took us a while to 
actually start telling people. We didn't start telling our friends and family until I was 14 weeks. And I just want to encourage anyone who is listening to this to just take your time. And if you want to tell people you're pregnant, as soon as you get a pregnancy test, that's awesome. But also if you feel more comfortable waiting, don't feel guilty that you're not telling your mom or you're not telling your family right away. Wait until it feels right for you. We, like I said, we decided to start telling people around 14 weeks and it was still very hard. I remember not really being able to celebrate with that person. So I would tell someone and they would get so excited. And I was just like, yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm happy, but I couldn't really celebrate it in my mind. All I was thinking was I was having this tally of people who I was going to have to go back and tell when I miscarried again, because obviously that was a really big fear of mine. So it wasn't easy, especially, you know, people always mean well, but some of the responses we got, you know, was, oh, yay, finally, or do you know how long I've been waiting for this? Or, you know, things like that, where we didn't share with our, a lot of our family and friends about the miscarriages. So maybe that's why they weren't so sensitive to it, but it was, it didn't help with my anxiety. <laughs> I feel all of that. You know, mm -hmm. like sometimes just people are awkward in general, but like we just don't know how to act around pregnant women. We just don't. When did you start to feel, if at all, okay? Yeah. So the new practice that I was going to, I just want to mention, was really good about helping with this anxiety. So pretty much the whole first trimester, I scheduled an appointment with the nurse just to hear the heartbeat at least every other week. Because, you know, when you are so early on, you, you're not feeling the baby move. I wasn't showing at all. I also was blessed enough to not have any morning sickness. I'd had no pregnancy symptoms. So it was very hard for me to realize, okay, I'm still pregnant and I'm still, baby's still there. You know, it was the only confirmation I got was when I would go into these appointments with the nurse and she would just put the fetal monitor on and just check her heart rate. And I just want to say how amazing that was. So don't be afraid to ask for that. If you need confirmation, you know, you're not being annoying or needy. You know, if you need to go in every other day to hear your baby's heartbeat and your practice is willing to do that, that definitely helped me a lot. Oh, um, I so think that's such a, that's just such good advice. Maricela. I'm crazy and I just bought a Doppler. <laughs> so I like, bought one too, okay. but I was always afraid that I wasn't doing it right. <laughs> so I would check myself and then I would have the nurse check, which, you know, they were the professionals. So I felt a lot better about them telling me she was okay. <laughs> yes. My recommendation to listeners is just go to your provider and get the heart rate checked. Like you said, every other week, I think that's important. But just mm -hmm. know there's a few of us out there that are a little extra. I had to listen to my baby's heartbeat like every day just to know I was yes. okay. So Maricel, I have a clarifying question about your anxiety. Do you feel like you had antepartum anxiety, like clinical diagnosis, or was it just anxiety around like the fear of miscarriage? I think it was just anxiety about the fear of miscarriage again. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you felt better when you got these heart rate checks. And then did you feel better when you like the baby started moving and you could feel kicks? Like, did that help with that anxiety? Yes, definitely. So I actually felt her first kick at 19 weeks. 
And that definitely helped so much to just, you know, know she was okay. Then of course I became obsessed with every day, like every hour putting my hands on my stomach and being like, come on, baby, kick, kick. I want to know you're okay. It definitely helped me a lot to feel her move. And at this point, I finally was able to take the pregnancy more, not seriously, but just celebrate it and prepare for labor. So I did finally allow myself to purchase your book. I wish I wouldn't have waited so long, but it was one of those things where I didn't want to purchase it if I was going to lose the baby again. Finally, I purchased your book, which is amazing. Highly recommend it. (laughs) So that was one of the things I did. Oh, no, it's okay. I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate it. Like I literally have, it's like I get flashes of every single person's name that has ever purchased the book. And I just have extreme gratitude. So I knew exactly when your name came across and I had seen you on social media. So I already kind of knew and I was really excited for your purchase. So thank you for, um, hopefully it helped. Besides my book, what else did you do to prepare? So I did find a local uh, practice that had uh, doulas that you could hire a doula from. So I we did interview a doula and we did hire a doula. So that was really great. I don't regret that one bit. My husband and I also did take a birth class. We took the Bradley Method course. It was through Zoom because pandemic but it was still just as helpful. I feel like I was worried that it wasn't going to be as helpful because it wasn't in person, but it was definitely a great course to take. If you are looking for a course that will not only help you learn what's going to happen to your body, but gives your partner a lot of tools as to how they can help you and they can understand what's happening to your body. Yeah. It's partner Um, coach childbirth and it's really wonderful. Actually, in my doula practice, Maricela, the chart that's the overview of the stages of labor, I use that on every single prenatal for education. Like there's nothing better out there. There just isn't. Even if you don't take a Bradley class, everyone Google Bradley method overview of labor and delivery. It's a really amazing chart. So and then you listen to, I think, hundreds more podcasts probably. Yes, I did. Definitely. So as you're preparing, like before we started the interview, you had mentioned to me that you're an you're a Mexican American woman. And I was wondering if you like plan to use any of the birth tools that are from the Mexican heritage, like the rebozo or any cultural traditions with your family that you wanted incorporated into your birth. Yeah. So the rebozo was actually really cool to hear someone else say that word, you know, it wouldn't, and using it in birth was something that I definitely looked forward to. We didn't actually end up using it, but it was nice to know that it was a tool and it was available for me. As far as culturally, I think postpartum, it was more, you know, I leaned on my mom a lot about customs with postpartum, not so much during the birth because her birth was very different than mine. But Definitely postpartum. Okay, good. Whoa, amazing story, right? I was just jumping in to interrupt really quick with a couple of reminders. Again, you can pick up all my free guides at birthstory.com. 
you can get $5 off the Birth Story book by using Birth Story Podcast. When you check out, that also gives you free shipping and a free gift. If you are loving this episode, I say you start at the beginning. Start on episode one and go on a journey with me, letting me be your virtual doula and guiding you through this pregnancy. And if you are loving the podcast, I ask that you share it and leave a five-star review on whatever podcast player you are using. Today, I celebrate you. So now let's get back to this episode. This is a question that I've recently started to ask some of my guests because I've been doing some studies on birthing throughout the world. And like, I know you're birthing in America and Vancouver, Washington, but you know, anytime I have an opportunity to interview someone that has like a background from another country, I'm like, people in every country are birthing so uniquely than the way that we're birthing in the United States. And I'm just hoping that more of these traditions like the rebozo start to bleed into our practices for unmedicated birthing. It's really, really cool. Here you are, like, I would say, like, extra prepared, like, really excited. Husband coach childbirth or partner coach childbirth, like, Bradley Ready. You have a doula. We can mention her name. Do you want to talk about her? Yes. So she was amazing. And it's funny because and you mentioned Bryn from the podcast. And my doula's name was Bryn. And I feel like immediately when I heard her name and she said her name was Bryn, I knew that she was the one for us because I felt so connected to the Birth Hour podcast and Bryn from the podcast that I was like, okay, this is a sign. She's the one for us. Oh, Um, I think that's really cool. I think that is a sign. That's mm -hmm. absolutely a sign. How often did you meet with her, talk with her prior to going into labor? So I talked to her one-on-one, like just her and I without my partner through Zoom call once. And then she we had two in-person meetings with my husband present as well, where we came up with our birth plan and everything. We mainly texted a lot to just to get to know each other. And then if I had any questions about anything, I would text her. I think that's pretty customary for them as far as how they run their, I don't know if I can mention them, but Baby Nest is the the company that I use to find her. Okay. So it sounds like she really prepared you. That's a lot of meetings and it sounds like she was available 24-7 via text message. So leading up to going into labor, did you feel like, okay, I'm ready. I've got this. I did feel ready, but I still had doubt. You know, I think that just comes with first labor. I felt, you know, like, okay, I'm pretty sure I can do this, but I'm still a little scared. But yes, she helped us come up with a really great birth plan. Plan A was a water birth. Then we had plan B, which was an epidural. And then the main goal was a trauma-free birth with my husband present and, you know, hopefully if we could do anything to avoid a C-section. I did also want to mention that I did start seeing a chiropractor and a pelvic floor therapist. So when I say I was prepared, I covered all my bases. Yes, <laughs> um, and you I highly did. I highly recommend both of those. Yes, I recommend the chiropractor and a pelvic floor therapist to every single one of my clients. Like you were very well-prepared. So let's talk about the actual birth. 
And the question everyone wants to know is, how in the world did you know you were in labor? (laughs) So I actually didn't know I was in labor. Um, So at 39 weeks, I went in for my regular scheduled prenatal appointment. And my midwife asked if I wanted to get checked. And I said, yes. So before she even inserted her hand, she asked, are you sure your water hasn't broken? And I said, "Mm, well, I don't think so. And she said, okay, because I see some drippage and I think we need to test it because, you know, if it has broken, then we don't want to check you. So she did test the fluid and she came back in and was, you know, said, okay, yes, it's amniotic fluid. Your water has broken. And of course I was in shock. This was a Monday. And since that Friday before I was feeling different, but I didn't expect to go in and hear that my water was broken. So she went ahead and told me that she thought it was probably a high tear in my water bag. She gave me some options. Uh, She said I could either go ahead and go to the hospital that night. So like go home, get my stuff, go to the hospital for an induction, or I could wait till the next morning. But that was as late as she wanted me to wait, only because we didn't know exactly when my water had broken. I suspected that it was that that it was that morning, so Monday morning, but I wasn't 100% sure. So my husband and I both talked about it. And I should say at this point, they were letting him into the visits. So he was with me during the appointment. And we both felt that we would be more comfortable going in that night, just because, you know, I didn't know when my water had broken. And also we had our, you know, our fur baby, Coda, who we knew we wanted to make sure that she was with a friend and taken care of. So it just seemed like it was a lot more, less hectic to go in and, you know, get all these other things taken care of and just focus on the birth. So we went home that night, we finished packing our bags. We took our dog Coda to my friend Caitlin's house. And we went to our favorite restaurant, (laughs) had a great dinner. Everyone thinks I'm crazy for going to have dinner when they told me my water broke, but (laughs) it was honestly just great. Uh, And we arrived to the hospital at about 9.30 that night. I love it. I would have told you to go out to like breakfast, lunch, and dinner and do (laughs) all of the things. Did your doula meet you at the hospital that night or did she wait until you were in active labor? So I called my doula after my OB appointment and, you know, I let her know about the water situation. And she told us that she thought I could wait till the next morning if I wanted to, if I thought that I was going to be able to get some rest that night. But she also understood if I just wanted to go in, you know, that night. So she did not meet us at the hospital right then and there. She was going to plan to meet us in active labor, which ended up being the next morning. So that makes sense to me. So you had experienced premature rupture of the membranes or PROM. This is when our water breaks prior to us being on labor. It happens about 10 to 15% of the time. It's not like the movies, you know, where all labor starts that way. Most of the time, 80 plus percent of the time, water doesn't break until transition or after. So you experience PROM. Labor typically begins within 6, 8, 12 hours, sometimes 24, 48 on the longer side, but like your midwife said, they didn't want to check you. So if your water is broken, 
hands out, everybody, right? Especially if you're GBS positive. So like hands out, you don't want, you know, vaginas aren't vacuums, but like, you know, bacteria travels upwards and can get up there. And so they were, you guys were like, okay, it's, we don't know when our water broke. So it could have been 24 hours later or 48 hours later. We don't know. So let's just get to the hospital and like get the show on the road. And I love that your doula was available for you. And then also had a healthy boundary. Like I'll be with you in active labor. That's pretty standard protocol for doulas. Like yes, we can't we stay with you for five her. days. <laughs> so. <laughs> so what did they do that night? If anything, did they monitor you or did they start the induction? So they only monitored me. So um, we were in our room by around 11 p.m. and I was having contractions. They were two to four minutes apart and about 45 seconds long. So I, you know, I was in labor on my own technically, but when I did get a check, because eventually they, uh, the midwife on call did check me, I was at a negative two station. She said my cervix was thin, but I was only at a one centimeter dilated. I wasn't making the dilation progression that they wanted to see, but they also said that they couldn't give me Pitocin or miso or any of those other medications because my contractions were already so close together. So at that point, they suggested that I start fluids because they were hoping that that would space my contractions out enough to where they could give me some sort of medication. All that makes sense. We don't want you to hyper contract. But for anybody listening to like it's usually just time, time and patience, right? And those contractions will grow stronger to 60 to 90 seconds and they'll grow longer to 60 to 90 seconds and then they'll grow stronger too to push the head down and thin out the cervix even more and start to open it. So I'm so curious, Maricela, I'm like, well, what did they do? Did the IV, yes. so you got IV fluids and I would call it therapeutic rest. <laughs> what did they do? Yes. So then at 2.30 a.m., the contractions were definitely stronger, but I was still able to like close my eyes and rest in between them. And my husband was doing a really good job. Oh, that's Sloan. (laughs) Hi, Sloan. Hey, everybody. Everybody say hi to Sloan. Hey, girlfriend. So my husband was doing an amazing job with like everything he learned, keeping me hydrated, counter pressure, all of that, because at this point it was just him and I. We were texting my doula and keeping her in the loop. And if we had questions, she still did, you know, talk to us, but she wasn't there yet. And then around 3.30 a.m., there was a really loud pop and I felt a lot of warm fluid and I felt the pop. So it was just a really crazy, cool feeling. And my water fully broke at that point. Unfortunately, this is where things start to get, they start to deviate from the plan. (laughs) So I did have meconium in my, when, after my water broke, which I knew that that meant I could no longer have a water birth. And that was the policy there. And I knew that. So it wasn't shocking, but it was still a little bit disappointing. Oh, um, that's so disappointing, Maricela. Here at our birth center, all of the midwives and nurses are wearing t-shirts that say meconium happens. Oh, that's awesome. But every place has different policies. So where you were birthing, Mm -hmm. it was like no water birth. No water birth. So I was, I could still labor in the tub. I could labor in the birth tub or the the tub in the room, like in the bathroom, but I wasn't allowed to deliver in the tub. And then at this point, I 
it starts to get a little blurry as far as the timeline goes, <laughs> but they did start me on Pitocin and they assured me it was going to be a very slow increase. So they started me at a level two and around 4.30, I did end up getting in the bathtub in the bathroom and the water just felt so amazing. It really helped just take the edge off and it was really great. Unfortunately, the water was just a little too hot. I think the nurse just kind of made it too hot. So I was only able to sit through maybe like five contractions in the water. And then I had to get out because I was like overheating. (laughs) So it was nice to be able to experience what it felt like to at least labor in the water for a little bit. But as soon as I got out of the water, the contractions felt so intense. I was, you know, upset because I knew I wasn't going to have the water birth that I wanted. And I just said to myself, okay, I was avoiding an epidural because I wanted a water birth. I can no longer do that. So why am I avoiding an epidural? So at that point, I did ask for the epidural. I said the code word and everything. But what was your code word? My, my code word was actually Costa Rica. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we've we've been to Costa Rica and it's one of our favorite places. So, you know, it just brought good memories. But luckily, I my husband, you know, had learned all about coping methods and everything. And he knew that I wanted to try nitrous. And he said, Hey, do you want to try nitrous before we go on with an epidural? And I said, Oh yeah, I forgot that 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 was like even an option. (laughs) I love you. You're like, Oh yeah, I'm in labor and I'm in labor land. And my brain doesn't remember all those things. But I love that your doula had made you plan A, plan B and plan Mm -hmm. C. So and if it wasn't because my husband remembered that that was an option, I probably would have just gotten the epidural then and there. They brought in the nitrous and it was also just so amazing. I It helped me get from the one centimeter that I had been checked at before all the way to a six before I actually got the epidural. Oh, so, that's perfect. That's actually mm-hmm. perfectly timed epidural then. It was around 7 a.m. when I was at six centimeters dilated. So the midwife that was on call during the night left. She was amazing. I didn't interact with her much, but when I did, she was great about being patient and talking to me when I wasn't having a contraction. She told me I was laboring beautifully and that she expected my baby to be there around noon, around lunchtime, because she did check me before she left. Then the uh, my doula, I should say my doula did arrive at around like 6 a.m. Um, and she was taking pictures. So we have pictures from this moment on. Unfortunately, then when the daytime midwife came in, we didn't have such a great experience like we did with the night staff. I will say she came in and she was pretty aggressive about me getting an epidural. And I'm not sure if that was her simply, you know, maybe I don't know what information she got from the midwife before her. I know maybe she heard that I had asked for an epidural at one point, but She came in and was like, okay, I think you need to get an epidural because you've been laboring all night and you need to get some rest. And she was just talking at me and she wasn't waiting in between contractions. At one point, she even told me, Maricela, you need to take the mask off and listen to me. And it was just a very change of mood immediately as soon as she came in the room. And she checked me and it was a horrible check. She was very aggressive. 
And, you know, she put everyone just on edge. So my husband did ask her to leave the room. And then my husband, my doula and I were able to talk about what just what had just happened, right? We requested a new midwife, but unfortunately she was the only midwife on call at that moment. So if we didn't want her, we were going to have to be transferred to a resident, which my doula was really great about telling us like, you know, I think that if we just talk to this midwife and we might have a better experience than if you have to go with the resident. So it was just very, it was a turning point, I will say in, in my labor where it was going, you know, not as planned, but it was going great. And then she came in and kind of just threw everything overboard. <laughs> I won't say that I got the epidural because of her, because I do think that the epidural was, I made that choice to, to eventually get it. I did eventually get the epidural after when I was at a six, like I mentioned, it was about, I think it was 20 hours or sorry, 12 hours of labor. And then I got that for the role. That's a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Like yes. on my unmedicated birth, you know, I think I labored eight hours and then he was in my arms, right? And then my epidural birth. My epidural birth, I lasted till I was two centimeters dilated, Maricela, and I do this for a living. So I like barely could function on the first one. So you lasted 12 hours. That's a really long time. I think it is really important, though, to take a note right here to say like, okay, yes, you did make a decision and it was informed consent and you had made a plan in advance. That was like A is water birth, B is epidural. But it is a real thing in our country where people feel pressured into medical interventions, right? And so maybe she felt like she was doing the right thing if she felt like you were struggling and you had asked for the epidural. But like, I really wish that everyone's go-to that practices medicine for pregnancy, like step one is like, hey, let me remind you that your body is smart and it has this innate wisdom and that it can do it and you can do it even if you labored all night and you are exhausted. You can. The question is, are we in pain or are we suffering? Do we need therapeutic rest? And is this a tool that could help us have a beautiful non-traumatic birth? If it was presented to you that way, it could have felt so much different. You know? Yes, 100%. And I like that you used that verbiage because that's exactly what my doula said. She said, you know, if you're moving from pain to suffering, that's not good. And an epidural is well, perfectly fine tool to use. So like I said, it was a informed and I consented to the epidural. We, I talked it over with my husband and my doula and they both agreed that I needed to get some rest and that I needed to sleep because now it had been, it was the next morning, right? It was Tuesday. I will say with the doula coming in the way she did, I think that she was thinking that she was doing the right thing because she heard that I had asked for the epidural before, but I wish she would have evaluated the situation at that moment. And at that moment, I was doing fine with just the nitrous. But, you know, then obviously when you get the choice to stop the pain, you're, you know, <laughs> you're it like, throws you off. Check. Yeah. I'll take that thing. Yeah. You're yeah, like, it's like, I had... forgot that I asked for that epidural, but now you reminded me. So yeah, actually, I do want that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like dangling like chocolate cheesecake in front of you. And it's like, do you think you, maybe, you think maybe you want this? You when go. you're starving. Yeah, right? exactly. When you're starving, <laughs> when you haven't had anything yes. to eat in three days and you're like, I'll take it. 
So eventually I did get my epidural and um, my husband actually stepped out into the hall and had a conversation with the midwife while I was taking a nap after I got the epidural. And, you know, he just let her know like why we were upset that we didn't appreciate her demeanor and how she came into the room. She didn't apologize, but she acknowledged that um, maybe she could have approached things differently. Eventually she came back in and did speak to me after I took a little nap and, you know, we just decided to go on with her and just pretty much forget what had happened and just continue with our plan. So I had the epidural, I took a nap and then I remember waking up and I remember I I see my doula in the room. I see the nurse, my husband's also taking a nap. And I remember saying, feeling like, okay, I feel like I need to push, but for some reason, I didn't want to tell anyone that (laughs) don't ask me why, but I was like, "Hmm, I think I'm just going to do it. And like, we'll just see what happens. Right. I love you. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, even though I had the epidural, I could still feel when every contraction was starting, it wasn't as intense, but I could still feel the pain. The epidural was stronger on one side. (laughs) Sorry. It's okay. Hey, Sloan. Okay. The epidural was stronger on my right side than it was my left. So I could still very much feel the contractions coming on. So I started to push on my own or what I thought, you know, was pushing. But obviously I had monitors on. So they noticed that something was happening. And the nurse asked me, oh, are you pushing? And I, for some reason, don't ask me why I said, no, I denied that I was pushing, even though I was doing it. (laughs) Um, So she's like, okay, well, let's, let's see, let's see what's going on. And they checked and they're like, oh, yeah, I think, I believe they called back the midwife and she checked. And sure enough, I was, she said, I was like a nine with a lip. And she said, if if I wanted to, she could pull it back and I could try and do some pushes. Okay. Let's tell everybody what a lip of a cervix is though. (laughs) <laughs> really quick, because right now there's people that are like, what is a lip? Like, like cervixes have lips? No. So essentially what it is, is that we hear nine centimeters dilated, but our cervix actually doesn't dilate like uniformly or symmetrically. It's not like left, right, up, down. Like, you know, if you look at a clock, it's not like every single number on the clock is dilating at the exact same way in place and time. Like we may dilate more on the left or the right or the front or the back, you know, until we get complete to 10 centimeters. So a lip means that like you're nine centimeters like all around, but maybe there's like this, we would call you tin if it wasn't for what they call this lip. And it's just like a, a thickness or a swelling or a little piece of the cervix that's just left over and everything else is resolved. And so she offered to pull it back, which means during a contraction in a vaginal exam, the midwife will kind of, or the nurse could kind of pull or kind of push that little lip back and see if the head will come beyond it and resolve it. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Did it work for you? It did. Yes, it did work for me. And I will also mention that my doula and my nurse were both really great about helping me switch positions even after I got the epidural. So we tried a lot of different positions in bed. And then also when it was time to start pushing, they were amazing about giving me different options and not just on my back. We tried a couple different ones, but what ended up working the best for me was they put a metal bar above the bed and I was able to pull myself up 
with using that bar and then be in a squatting position to push. I did obviously have some assistance with like the leg that was most numb. So my right side, they needed to hold it a little bit, but it felt amazing with each contraction. When I felt like it started, I would use all my upper body strength to help myself get in that position again and push that way. I love it. That's um, called a squat bar, Maricela. You're yes, so cute. You're like, it's a metal bar, bar and I squatted. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, a squat bar. It's amazing. So most um, birthing institutions have squat bars, but they're not stocked in every single room. So that's a great thing to put in your birth plan. Like I would love to try a squat bar, you know, for pushing. So yes, and also I want to mention, don't be afraid to ask for it even with an epidural because you can, or at least in my hospital, they allowed me to try all of that even with an epidural. Yes. Thank you. I'm so glad that you mentioned moving positions. I always joke when my clients get epidurals, I'm like, you can get that epidural and you can take like a nap for 30 minutes or whatever. But like, then we're getting to work. Like we are moving positions. You're going to be on your hands and knees. You're going to be rocking back and forth. You're going to have one weird leg up in a high stirrup, you know, keeping your pelvis open, Mm -hmm. peanut ball, a birth ball, all the things we can use in the bed. So it is really important If you are really focused on a vaginal birth and you have an epidural, like do all the things, move, 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 continue, like rest for a little bit, you know, like rest, enjoy your epidural. But then like, you know, when you're nine centimeters dilator, you feel like pushing, Mm -hmm. like move your body. And so your doula and your midwife and your nurses, everybody helped you. And this is your husband, all of it. You had such a great team, Maricela. So yes, they, they were amazing about that. So tell me about the birth. I'm like on pins yes. and needles. I'm like, so how long did you push for? So I only pushed for about an hour and I did deliver her in that squat position. And what was so amazing about it was even though that position felt the best, it did take a lot of energy, right? I had to like use all my energy to lift myself up and then lift myself down to get rest during in between contractions. And that got really hard, really fast. So I can't remember who suggested it, but someone suggested that we lower the bed and have my husband sit behind me. And then he would help, you know, grab my wrist and sorry, not my wrist, grab my waist and help me go up into that squat position. And then he would help lower me in between contractions so I could rest. Yeah. After about 45 minutes, you know, I saw her little face and The awesome part about it is I did have a mirror. And since I did have the epidural, I was coherent enough to know what was going on. So I visibly remember thinking, okay, I'm going to see her head. I'm going to, she's going to be facing, you know, my back, then she's going to turn and then the rest of her body was going to come out. And I remember thinking, okay, don't freak out. Her face is going to look purple. Like, And I just, I had all this knowledge and I had watched birth videos and heard birth stories that I knew exactly what to expect. And then just to be able to see it and enjoy it because I wasn't in excruciating pain was honestly the best thing that could happen. And it's the main reason why I'm so grateful that I had the epidural because, you know, I was able to enjoy it so much and see my body do that. I'm so grateful for it too. What a beautiful yes. birth story. I'm like dying to know what time it is though. So like so, the terrible um, midwife comes in at 7 a.m. <laughs> and then what time do you deliver at? Yes. Um. So at 4.17, Sloan was born. 4.17. Yes, so. 
So I'm so glad. Okay, let me frame this for everybody, okay? Let's ask the question, like, y'all, if you have a job, what time do you go to work? What time do you get home from work, okay? I get this all the time from people are like, when does your doula like come, right? Your doula came at 6 a.m. You didn't deliver until 4.17 p.m. Presumably, she stayed for an hour or so after you gave birth to, you know, help you establish breastfeeding and do all of those things. Like that's a long day, right? Like most doulas work more than 12 hour shifts when, and you think you're calling them late. Does that make sense? Like a lot of people will think like, well, gosh, I'm already like six centimeters and I've been in labor for 12 hours and people have a hard time realizing, you know, Marcella, you still had 12 more hours to go when she, when she showed up you know? And so I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that and honored that for doulas, that doulas usually arrive when you're in active labor. Active labor is usually when you're around five to six centimeters dilated. You're having contractions every two to four minutes. I mean, every doula is different. Some doulas come for the whole 30 hours, you know? But if you're looking at hiring a doula, know that they're going to be there for you like your doula was, like Bren was for you for all the texting and talking and all the things. And then she was really there for you in person, present with you for your active labor. And then you're pushing in delivery. So 417, she slides, just slides out, I'm assuming, after an hour. An hour is really fast, Maricela. That's like super fast. Yeah, Um, no, it was it was faster than I thought it would be. And Luckily, it it wasn't too fast. So I had only a couple. I had three first degree tears and they were in um, interior. Um, But it was, you know, it was slow enough to where I wasn't injured too badly. (laughs) Excellent. Now, tell me about your plans for your placenta. Did you cut the cord or did you let the placenta deliver still attached? So we did let the placenta to or actually no i think we cut the cord yes my husband cut the cord we you know they let it pulsate and go white and then he cut the cord and then uh, i remember the midwife saying okay give me a little push and then sure enough the placenta came right out um, which was i still had the mirror so i still saw all of that too oh very interesting did you do anything with your placenta i did not looking back i do wish i would have encapsulated it I think it was just, for some reason, it was just something I didn't have any interest in. I had interest in everything else birth related except encapsulating my placenta. I think if we did decide to have another baby, I would, I would consider it. Well, I will tell you what, you were totally educated and totally informed going into this delivery. So whatever you decided for your body was the right thing. I will take a minute to say if anyone's interested in placenta encapsulation, it is one of the free guides that I have on my website at birthstory.com. So I have this whole workbook section. I'm not sure if you checked it out, Maricela, but there is a whole workbook Mm -hmm. section where you put in your email address and then there's like tons of free guides. And one of the free guides is on placenta encapsulation. And I talk all about like raw method versus steamed method and like the pros and the cons and the risks and the benefits and all that. So maybe if you decide to do this all over again, read my guide and see if it helps make a decision for you. So. Yes, I did check out the the resource, but I probably didn't read that part because like I said, I had no interest in yeah. in the encapsulation. <laughs> well, we just heard you breastfeeding Sloan, so that was amazing. So how is breastfeeding going? So I thought breastfeeding was going great, right? So at 37 weeks, I hand expressed and I knew I had colostrum. 
when she initially was born, my doula helped me latch her. I was never in pain. I knew that she was getting the colostrum. But then at day four, so we were already home from the hospital. We had an appointment with the lactation consultant in the hospital. And we went in and unfortunately, she was not very helpful. Um, She weighed Sloan and said, oh, your baby lost 10% of her birth weight and you need to start pumping. So she gave me this whole elaborate plan where she wanted me to put Sloan on the breast for 20 minutes and then pump after every feeding and then give her whatever I pumped. So it was very discouraging because this whole, you know, four days, I was thinking I was doing great because I had no pain. She had no trouble latching. And now this person who's supposed to be, you know, a expert, she's a lactation consultant, tells me, oh, Sloan might have a tongue tie. You need to go see a pediatric specialist and, you know, you need to do all these things. And that appointment was very overwhelming. I came home and I attached myself to the pump and I was in so much pain because Obviously, my milk had just come in, so my breasts were engorged, and I felt like I couldn't trust myself because I thought breastfeeding was going great, but this professional was telling me it wasn't, right? So I cried. I cried so hard. I called my doula, and she told me, no, like, you know, don't, basically don't listen to her. I was in that, she said, I was in that delivery room. I saw Sloan latch on. I saw her get colostrum. Like, you're fine. I was using a haka, which is one of the things I highly recommend. And I would use it on the breast that Sloan was not attached to. And I would get almost two ounces every single time. So I You're was producing plenty. Yes, exactly. I was like, I know I have milk. I know I have more than enough milk because a four-day-old doesn't need eight ounces of milk, right? Right. Um, I stuck to what I was doing. I pretty much ignored her plan, the lactation consultant's plan. And I stuck to what I was doing. I was using the haka. I would offer her whatever I got in the haka, but she would never want it. She was fully satisfied with just the breast. But of course, you know, the medical staff was not happy about her weight. So the pediatrician had us go in the first week, like every two days. Then after that, she had us go in every week for weight checks because they wanted her to be back at her birth weight. And it took her about three weeks to get back to it, which I think normally they want to see it within the first week or two. Am I right? Yeah, you are right. But she got back Mm -hmm. to it. And mother's intuition can't mess with it. A hundred percent. And that's one thing I really want to stress is trust yourself because there were so many times that I was like, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm not feeding her enough. You know, how could I do this to my baby just because I want to breastfeed? I should just give her formula. Then I'll know exactly how much she's eating, right? But I had something in the back of my mind saying, no, you're doing fine. You're not in pain. She's latching. We got the tongue tie checked. She didn't need a revision and you have enough milk. So I am just so grateful that I stuck to it. And, you know, she did gain her birth weight back. It took longer than they liked, but she did it. And I'm so grateful that I trusted myself and that I had my doula as well to tell me you're doing fine. She said, you're not broken. Sloan is not broken. You guys are doing great. Just continue doing what you're doing. Oh, she sounds wonderful. I cannot wait to link to her in the show notes. Um, Many doulas also are postpartum doulas. Some are lactation consultants, some are infant feeding specialists. So we share these stories. A lot of doulas have extra training in, in feeding. 
and it sounds like your doula probably did also. Here's another thing. You were on IV fluids for like 20 hours. That is going to inflate your baby's birth weight. Yes. And that's exactly what she told me. And I did mention that to the lactation consultants, but they uh, didn't seem to take that into consideration. But Uh, I 100% believe that the fluids had, because I had four boluses of IV fluids. Oh, yeah. Whenever I have really long labors or long inductions and you're at the hospital for 24 hours before, you know, almost 24 hours before you Mm -hmm. delivered, you know, I always kind of try to prepare my mom's like, hey, birth weight might be like a little higher because of all of these IV fluids. And and, it, and she, did, <laughs> yes. And she, the, my doula did warn me about that, about the IV fluids and the birth weight, but it's still something where when you're in postpartum and you know, you have these professionals harassing you about the weight, like you're, you're still going to stress out about it. Yes. And I'm so glad you pushed through and that here you are at seven weeks and you're feeding your baby and she is doing perfectly. So one last thing I wanted to mention about postpartum, uh, because I had never heard about this happening to anyone before, is on day nine of postpartum, I got a UTI and that was miserable. Um, Like I said, postpartum, immediate postpartum, I was feeling so great. I wasn't sore. I was walking around and doing, felt amazing. But then day nine came and I had this horrible pain. I have had one UTI in my life before this. So I had an idea of what I thought it was, but I was scared. I wasn't sure what was going on. So I did end up going to an urgent care and got antibiotics for that UTI. Unfortunately, that first round of antibiotics didn't work. So then I had to have a second round of antibiotics. So I just wanted to throw that out there just because I had never heard of someone getting a UTI after labor. And when it happened to me, I was very scared and it was miserable. (laughs) Well, and it's also more common with an epidural because of the catheter too. So it is something like they either do a a Foley catheter or they do an in and out catheter. And anytime we're going in and out your urethra to drain your bladder, there's a risk, an increased risk of infection. Yeah. So that is really good. That's good that you mentioned it because I don't think I've ever talked about it on the podcast. So um, all you epidural mamas, especially just know that there is a a chance for UTI. So if you're feeling that burning urgency, you know, UTI feeling after birth, like don't just chalk it up to like, I just gave birth. Definitely call your doctor. So great advice. Maricela, we've learned so much from you today. I mean, we've gone on a long journey with you. It was very beautiful to hear about, you know, everything from the beginning, your history, your whole pregnancy, how you advocated for yourself every single stinking step of the way. Like you were amazing. And I am, I'm just like, I feel like I'm your doula. I'm like, I'm so proud of you. You mentioned the Hakka. Are there any other favorite baby products you want to leave our audience with before we say goodbye? Well, definitely your book. Like I said, I, I really enjoyed reading the birth stories every week and then the little prompts. That was a, an awesome resource to have. Honestly, there's not a ton of baby products per se other than the Hakka. For me, it was mainly you know the podcast and hiring a doula and the Bradley course and just educating yourself, I think is the best tool or product you can have. I think that if there is one episode that I could share with my audience and is like, listen to this episode before you give birth, it's going to be this one, Maricela, because you hit all of the key highlights of my best recommendations. So I will link to everything in the show notes, you guys. Thank you for mentioning my book too. That makes me just blush and feel really good. 
I really enjoyed our time together today and I'll let you go so you can go snuggle Sloan. Thanks for being here and hugs. Thank you so much, Heidi, for having me. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like. 